Hey guys, it's Shawnee and welcome back to Wallace Scotland. If you haven't already, can you go check out the Instagram page because that's where I post all the pictures for the episodes. It's Wallace Scotland Podcast and it would mean a great deal if you could go give it a follow and give some of the pictures a like as well. Twitter as well, which is Lawless Scotland. And I'm on there nearly every other day just chatting away to people. So if you ever had a question about any of the episodes, then that's the place to probably put it to me is on the Twitter page. So give that a follow as well if you can. Thank you very much if you do. So this week I was in a WhatsApp call, video call with a couple of my friends because we're all getting bored still in lockdown and we were just having a drink and a chat over a video call. So before like two of my other friends joined the group chat, a couple of my friends said that last time we'd done this, like the week previous, the couple that hadn't joined the chat yet, who lives just down the street from me in a new town that we moved to last year, they had said once we got off the call last week that do we know that our house is like the murder house? So my friend told me this and they said, well, you know, they didn't want to tell you because they weren't sure if you knew or not and they didn't want to be the ones to have to tell you in case you weren't into that. And I was like, oh my God, like I would have 100% want to know every single detail of that. Obviously my friend that was telling me this was like, well, that's exactly what I said to them as well. I said, no, Shawnee wouldn't be concerned over the fact that her house was deemed the murder fa- the murder house. She would be properly excited by that, you need to tell her. So obviously, as soon as they joined the chat, I was like, so tell me everything about my house being the murder house. Like, this is an amazing, like, thing. Like, it's so interesting. Like, tell me what happened. But the only thing is, is I don't think they got the right house, which is quite disappointing because our house has only had, like, two previous owners And one was, like, an old boy that had owned the house ever since it was built in the 70s. And he passed away, I think, in, like, a care home or something. And then the last um, owners only had the house for, like, three years or something. And they both sold us the house. So we don't think it's our house. And when we tried to look it up on the internet, we couldn't find anything either. So I was a little bit disappointed, but... I can't really find any story of any house on our street and my friend who has lived in this town her whole life is the one that originally said about the story. So she said to us that her mum, when she was sending out her wedding invite, seen her address and said, oh, I'm pretty sure that that house is the murder house. When I was younger, your gran or someone in their family used to live at the bottom of the street from us and this is where they found out what happened basically. So apparently it was a wife had murdered her husband in the house but I really don't think it's my house because obviously there's only been two previous owners that I know of. I don't think anyone else stayed in here as in like rented or anything so I don't think it's our house, but I still haven't found out whose house it is either on the street because obviously if a story like that has been passed down, it happened somewhere, you know? 
there was one thing that I found on the internet for my town and it was a murder that happened just a couple of years back in a flat in the same town but it wasn't anything to do with my street I don't even know where the street is actually to be honest because I'm still quite new to the town so I'm still trying to get my bearings on street names and things like that and there's whole parts that I've never even been to before so I've no idea where that one is but maybe I'll cover it in like a little court roundup or something um, in the future. I didn't really read the story because obviously I was on a mission to try and find out what was going on with my own house but yeah I don't I don't know I didn't I didn't find anything she was going to ask her mum again and find out exactly what happened and try and find out which house it was and things like that and just more details because obviously she was just recounting it from like old memories and just like one comment that her mum had made and hadn't really asked it anymore so she's going to ask more and then if I find out anything else interesting I'll let you guys know because I just found it so interesting and I was buzzing for the fact that my house could have been called the murder house and I know that's weird and I know that's strange and I know that's not normal because I know lots of people would be like oh my god I can't believe I stay in this house I don't like it or whatever and that's probably a normal reaction to that kind of news but for me I was like buzzing this would be amazing also by the fact that I have been telling my friend um for months now that I have like this feeling in this house that there's something else or I'm not alone if you know what I mean I just have a feeling I can't explain it and also I have like a glass door in my living room and sometimes when I'm sitting up at night watching tv or listening to a podcast reading a book whatever I'm doing in the living room and my boyfriend might be upstairs in bed because he's working in the morning and obviously I'm in lockdown and I'm not an essential worker so I have nothing better to do than stay up late sometimes I see out the corner of my eye something walking past that glass door I swear to you I have seen it on multiple occasions now obviously he says that it's just my imagination and maybe it is just my imagination or it's like hope I don't know but obviously not hope for a bad spirit though you know like I'm not into that I don't want to be like the next conjuring or anything but yeah I mean I believe there's got to be something more you know I don't know what it is because I'm not an expert in any way but I've had experiences in the past which I can do an episode on if anyone's interested in the future like maybe around Halloween time or something we'll do like a ghost poltergeist experience day and you guys can like write in and stuff and I'll share my story and share your stories and we can do things like that but I think that's probably better left to like the best month of the year which is Halloween month obviously but yeah so that was just a bit of like an interesting thing that happened to me this week but then also was disappointing as well because I couldn't find like any facts to back up the the claims that she was making about my house so I was a bit disappointed but yeah if my friend gets back to me with more information then you guys will definitely be one of the first to know just to keep you in the loop (laughs) so today's episode is 
maybe going to have to be a two-parter because I have so much information on this guy. His name is Peter Manuel and if you don't know who he is then you should know who he is because he's like the biggest serial killer to come out of Scotland and I knew him even though like even when I wasn't too into true crime like when I was younger I had heard the name because a hundred percent it's well known I'm pretty sure there's been lots of stuff on TV based around him and things like that. It's it's super well known. So if you don't know, you're about to know. So let's just get right into it because like I said, we've not got a lot of time. I don't want to make this episode super, super long. So we might do it in a two-parter. I'll wait and I'll see what the time clock is saying. And I might wrap up at some point start recording again for another episode and give you something a two-parter we'll just wait and see so samuel and bridget peter manuel's parents married in scotland when they were pregnant with his older brother james samuel then moved to new york in search of a new family life for the whole family he decided to go over first see if there was any work try and find them somewhere to stay He left Bridget heavily pregnant at home to go in search of this new life. After the birth of James, Bridget moved over to New York with Samuel, leaving young James with her mother in Scotland. And I I think that was maybe quite common practice back then as well when they were off in search of a new life was to leave the baby behind because things might not work out I'm not sure, but I don't think that's strange for the times, if you if you know what I mean. A year after arriving in the USA, Bridget gave birth to Peter. So this was the 13th of March, 1927. In 1929, the US stock markets crashed and left the US in a Great Depression. This made life for the Manuels very hard, struggling to live struggling to make ends meet they decided to move back to Scotland and this was when Peter was five in 1932. Peter really struggled with the move finding a new school with the new culture really difficult to adjust to and then obviously suddenly had an older brother as well which he wasn't used to he was used to being in America being an only child he obviously knew he had an older brother in Scotland and they were the families were all in contact and things, but he wasn't used to living with an older brother. When Peter was 10 in 1937, Samuel and Bridget had a daughter they called Teresa. Shortly after, they decided to move to Coventry in England to work for, a, a, it was like British motor industry at the time was really high in Coventry, so he moved down to work in that industry in some capacity. James and Peter's behaviour took a turn for the worst. James was often in trouble with the police and got sent to a boarding school for troubled children. Peter was a really intelligent child who got a scholarship and everything from a local grammar school, but he couldn't stay out of trouble. That was his problem. Even though he was really intelligent and he had all these good opportunities coming his way, he just couldn't couldn't stay out of trouble. At the age of 11, he stole from the church collection box 
and at 12 he got caught breaking into a shop as well. He got sent to an approved school for 12 months for those crimes. And what that basically is, an approved school is a special school for troubled youths, basically. He got caught again breaking and entering and was sentenced to serve time in a special school as well. This school reported that he was a ringleader who often got others into trouble, lied a lot, constantly in trouble himself and would blame others and he was very deceitful. He was in a further four approved schools and got moved around all the time because he kept running away from them. So basically his... His childhood at this point is just one of like pure troublemaking, stealing, deceitful. He's getting moved from school to school because none of them can handle him. He's running away. It's it's not looking good for Peter when he had such a promising start with how intelligent he was and getting the scholarship and everything. In November 1940, the bomb damage from World War Two was massive in Coventry. It was one of like the prime places to get hurt a lot and there was loads of bomb damage there. This led the family home to being destroyed in the Blitz as well. So they returned to live in Motherwell. But they left Peter behind at the approved school in Coventry because obviously he's been sentenced to serve this time in these approved schools due to his bad behaviour. In 1941, at the age of 14, he broke into a house. I think it was on the grounds of the school. And he stole a handbag and he was brandishing an axe around. And there was a woman inside, but luckily enough she wasn't harmed. But obviously this is a bit of an escalation where he's breaking into people's houses rather than just like stealing money from the collection box or breaking into a shop that was closed. He's actually breaking into someone's house and she's there. He's got an axe to defend himself or hurt someone. So this is escalation. At 15, he was charged with three more cases of breaking and entering. And he was also charged with malicious bodily harm for repeatedly striking a woman. So this woman had been asleep in her bed at the time of the robbery and she's obviously woke up, she's realised he was there and he's hurt her over the head with a large candlestick a number of times. This was the wife of one of the school staff as well. After he hurt her over the head through the candlestick, he dragged her into the woods where he attempted to forcibly violate her. Peter was sent to Borstal Institution for the Reformation of Young Offenders for this act that he'd done against this school staff's wife. At 16, he pled guilty to the robbery with the use of violence and he was sentenced to stay there for two years. In 1944, Peter was struck on the head by a bit of steel from the air raid attack that was going on at the time during the war. He was unconscious for several hours and he was dazed for days. He was also electrocuted in an accident in which three other people lost their lives but Peter luckily only lost consciousness and had severe burns. This led like a continuing suffering of memory loss and blackouts throughout the rest of his life it was reported. In 1945 at the age of 18 he was released and he moved to Blackpool but Blackpool wasn't really for him he didn't fit into the job there So he decided that he was going to go to Scotland and find his family. Within a year, he was arrested again for breaking and entering and stealing a watch. 
he was released on bail on the 21st of February 1946. On the 3rd of March 1946, this is when things get a little different. So, so far we know that Peter Manuel is not a good kid. He is definitely not on the right track. He is breaking and entering. He's not got any fear over hurting anyone. It's escalated from petty theft to theft with violence and escalated even further to theft with violence and the violation of a woman. So everything he's doing as he's getting older is just escalating and escalating. And then all of a sudden, on the 3rd of March 1946, it moves on from being about the robberies I would say I feel like that part was he wasn't interested in that part anymore really I think his interests have moved completely on to the the new psychopathic level that he's on now where he just wants to hurt people really you know so on 3rd of March 1946 he attacked a young mother of three on a footpath in Mount Vernon in Glasgow and just a wee FYI for you all, I just stayed right round the corner from where Peter attacked this young woman for like 10, 11 years of my life when I was younger and grew up in Glasgow. So this, this area I, I know quite well. He brutally kicked and beat her. They were in a struggle and they fell into a barbed wire fence and he just ran away. Now, unfortunately, the children of the mother were with her and fortunately he didn't do anything to the children but he did decide after he'd ran away to come running back and he kicked her again violently before he took off again so it was it was really random that I don't know if maybe he was disturbed and obviously if they fell into the barbed fence and he was maybe all caught up in things like that. He's lost his angle of attack, of surprise and things. So he's ran away, but then he's decided, well, actually, I'm not finished yet. So he ran back, he, like, jump-kicked her, another violent attack, and then he decided to take off again. Four days later, he attacked a nurse, just finishing her shift from a local hospital, around six miles away from the first attack, in Bells Hill and Calder Road. She was struck in the face by a man running towards her. He covered her face during the attack and warned her not to scream. During the struggle, they both fell into a hedge on the side of the road. A motorbike passed by spooking the attacker who ran away into a nearby woods. The survivor escaped with only a blow to the head. So who knows what would have happened if they hadn't struggled, fell into that bush, throwing him off his attack again and then obviously the passing by motorbike as well we we don't know anything could have happened that woman's pretty lucky at this point and you'll see why as we go on let's take a break for a minute because i really want to tell you guys about this podcast that i've found called masks of sanity and i've been listening to it whilst on lockdown it's so good melanie's voice the host is so relaxing which you will see because i'm going to play a little promo trailer for you guys so if you're looking for another podcast to listen to then 
I highly recommend this Mask of Sanity. Such a good podcast. So have a listen. It'll take less than a minute and then we'll get straight back into it. Hey there, true crime friends. It's Melanie Peterson, the host of Mask of Sanity. Join me as I take you through the cases of some of the world's most notorious killers and the brave men and women who risked it all to capture them. You can find Mask of Sanity wherever you listen to podcasts and hear all about the calculated madness of some of the world's most brutal killers who hid behind the Mask of Sanity. You won't want to miss this. Until next time, stay safe, friends. So yeah, that's Melanie's podcast, Mask of Sanity. If you feel like checking it out, check it out. Back to our case now. The next day, on the 8th of March, he attacked a 26-year-old lady as she got off a bus in Fallside Road in Bothwell. And this was just minutes from her home. Peter attacked her from behind and repeatedly banged her head off the floor. Now, she is kick-ass because she is fighting back. She is like, I am not fucking having this. No chance. She managed to bite his hand quite severely, injuring him, and really gave as good as she got until he managed to obviously get a hold of her head and banged her head off the floor so violently that she was really dazed and could no longer fight back. He then forced her to a nearby railway embankment where he sexually assaulted her and threw her into the ground, raking her false teeth. He tore her clothes and viciously raped her. When he was done, he tied her scarf around her eyes and he ran off. I mean, that is escalation at its finest. And now you can see why I said, well, this is the 8th of March. On the 7th of March, it was the nurse just the day before who managed to get away due to the fact that there was a passerby. And then the next day, he's obviously not had his fill. He, he didn't get to complete the scenario in his head from the last two attacks that he attempted. And the need is so bad that it's, it's, it's exploded into this horrendous, vicious attack on this 26-year-old lady who was only minutes away from her home. It's just... It's quite scary. It's quite scary, to be honest, because... You do feel like if you're a woman out walking on your own, sometimes you do get that like little pitter-patter in your heart that if it's, you know, like I've had it before, you're walking back from like the railway station in the middle of the night and there's no one around, but then all of a sudden you start hearing footsteps and you think, oh, and your heart kind of skips a beat a bit and you think, who is that? Why are they there? Are they walking too close to me? I don't know. I think it's just... It's mind-blowing that still in this day and age, like, women feel like that sometimes, you know? But it's because of people like Peter Manuel that, and these stories that you hear all the time, constantly, and these vicious attacks to women, that is why we feel like that, you know? And it's easy to say that you need to be strong and you can, can choose not to feel like that because there's a slim chance that it might happen to you and all these kind of things. But where do all these comments come from? All these comments come from men, probably. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I consider myself to be, like, a strong, independent woman. But I still get nervous sometimes. And that's just, like, that's just a crazy world to live in, you know? And I'm sure I'm not the only person. And if I am, then let me know. (laughs) 
But yeah, so I think everyone at some point like will have walked with their keys in between their fingers or something, you know, like ready to attack in case you're attacked. It's just, I don't know, it's like it makes me feel comfortable. Like it makes me feel comfortable if I know that I'm like woken up with an everyday object that I could I could turn into a potential weapon if I had to, you know? They just it's like a it's like a comfort blanket. I don't I don't know what else to say. But yeah, a hundred percent it is people like Peter Manuel that puts this edge of doubt in your head. And when you hear cases like this, it makes what you've been feeling on occasion feel justified because this has happened to another woman, twenty six years old minutes from her home and she was violently attacked. The lady was able to give a really good description of her attacker to the police. The next day, Peter Manuel was charged with the assault. He was identified by the victims of the two earlier attacks as well. So all three victims from the three previous attacks that I've just spoken about identified in a lineup Peter Manuel as their attacker. He was only charged with the last offence though and that was all just due to evidence. There was more evidence to convict on the last one rather than the the two previous attacks. On the 31st of March 1946, he was sentenced to 12 months in prison for the breaking and entering case that was before these attacks, before he moved up to Scotland and then he was charged with a further eight years for the 8th of March attack in Scotland. He contested the evidence was manufactured by the police against him on the 8th of March attack and that the sentence had been trumped up because the police had a vendetta against him. So he wasn't happy that he was getting all this time. But it was well deserved, Peter. So stop your whining in my case and do the time. After serving six years of the sentence, he was released from prison in 1952. He got a job with British Railways where he worked for about two years. But when they found out that he'd been to prison, because obviously Peter's not an honest guy and he's not told them his background. So they found out and he was fired. So unlucky Peter should have been honest from the start. Stop trying to hide your dodgy past. He then started to work with his father at the gas works in East Kilbride. East Kilbride at this time was a really up and coming town. It was the new town, new generation, the the town that was built to house the the really poverty stricken people of Glasgow that were living in tenement slums that they wanted to knock down and make way for new industrialised and things in Glasgow that would serve their purpose better than grotty old tenement flat so they wanted to make a new town just outside Glasgow in East Kilbride and this is around the time that that's all up and coming lots of work lots of building work obviously the gas works they basically need to start from scratch because it's all just fields and everything so a whole new town is getting built and this is him getting involved in that he met a woman called Anna O'Hara in 1954 All reports say that he treated her really well. On the 20th of May 1955, they got engaged and they set the wedding date for the 30th of July 1955. 
because back then you got engaged to be married you got married fairly swiftly after that engagement there wasn't like the new tradition of these days where a lot of people get engaged and then they don't actually get married for a few years down the line I know that quite a few of my friends have been engaged for years years and years they've decided to take that time to save up to have a really good wedding rather than the way that it used to be so right now it is looking like he's turned over a new leaf despite the fact that he obviously lied to his previous employer and got fired he's now got this job with his dad he's got a a good woman who all reports say he's treating her really well yeah it's kind of looking like maybe he has reformed and seen the error of his ways But then things go a bit south again for Peter. Anna broke off the engagement. Some say that it was because of religious differences. Peter came from a really strong Catholic background. All his family were Catholic. And so was Anna's family as well. But it was reported that Peter didn't follow the ways of the Catholic Church. Well, I'm pretty sure the ways of the Catholic Church is not to attack and rape women so yeah no shit but on a different level it was more just like he didn't go to church and he didn't really believe in God and things like this like I don't think he was very religious in that way even though he came from quite a religious Catholic background I don't think that he was practicing enough for the family so some say that that could have been the reason why Anna that broke off the engagement Others say as well that she found out about his criminal past, which he hadn't divulged to her, and she decided that that wasn't the man for her. I tend to lean towards the second option, because we already know he lied about it to his employer, so we already know he's capable of lying about it. So why not lie to your future fiancé, really, if you've got no morals like Peter Manuel? Either way... Peter didn't take the news very well at all and this leads him into his next spree of crime. This is like the triggering point to what happens next. Saturday the 30th of July 1955, a 29-year-old Mary McLaughlin walking home after going to a dance walks down a lane about 11.30pm when she was suddenly attacked from behind and forced to the ground. She saw her attacker had a knife and he put one gloved hand over her mouth to stifle her cries and he threatened to cut her throat. He then forced her over the fence into a field. In her terror, she managed to scream once, although people nearby, including two policemen, had heard the scream and searched for whoever cried out, but they failed to find anyone and they all eventually gave up looking. After she screamed, the threats to harm her carried on. She was forced across two fields. She pleaded with her attacker to let her go on multiple occasions, which every time led her to get a smack in the mouth. He forced the terrified woman to lie down and he lay next to her. They lay there for about an hour until the sounds of the search died down. At this point, Manuel, the attacker, of which there's like no doubt that it was him, and you'll, you'll know why as the story goes on. He told her that he was going to kill her, cut off her head and bury it. He forced kisses on her and groped her sexual parts. She begged him to stop, pleading that she was mother to two children. 
This was not true, but Mary hoped that the revelation of her being a mother to two small children would maybe spare her. There might be something in this, because at this point, suddenly his demeanour changed. And she said to the police later that he became much calmer, much more relaxed at this point. In the silence, they sat side by side and she asked him if she could go home. He refused and began talking to her. He claimed he was drunk and he didn't know what he was doing. He said to her he just felt like he had to murder someone. He then told her a typical Manuel story filled with half-truths and fantasies and over-exaggerations. He liked to be at centre stage when he was talking. He said that he'd been due to get married that day. But on the Friday, his fiance, who was a bus conductor, had broken off the engagement. And he just felt like he had to murder someone. And he'd even thought about drowning himself in the River Clyde. But then he remembered that he could swim. He had seen Mary, who resembled his fiance, so decided to attack her. He then asked Mary if she knew him, which she could truthfully reply to him that she didn't know him. If she'd answered yes, it's possible that he would have killed her probably just then and there he asked her where she worked and she told him he said it was obvious that they might use the same bus to work he then said that he would not be on the bus on monday he asked for her name and she gave a false one he lit a cigarette with a match and then she was able to see his face clearly for the first time and found that she actually did recognize him as a man that she'd seen travelling on the bus with an older man who must be his father on several occasions. He was now completely calm and he suddenly threw his knife away. She then asked him again if she could go home, to which he replied yes. He even offered to go to the police station with her to report him. Sensing danger though and very smart Mary, very smart, She told him that there was no need to go to the police and that she wouldn't report him. He walked home with her to 4th Street and he stayed on 3rd Street. So they just lived right next to each other as well. So creepy. She got into her house around 3am and just 6 hours later she reported all of this story to the police. So, I mean, why did he suddenly let her go and become calm when we know that his crimes are escalating so it doesn't make a lot of sense. John Bingham in his 1973 book Hunting Down Peter Manuel suggests that using the evidence, the stains found on Peter's clothing etc and things like that, that he had reached sexual climax and therefore became calm. He uses evidence from that night, such as stains found on Peter's clothing, to support his suggestions. Others suggest that it was the thrill of life and death and being able to decide who lives, who dies, which gives him the ultimate high of pleasure. We'll never know. We'll never know. So you decide which one you think it is as well, because there's no way of us knowing now. Inspector Munsey was investigating this attack and his career had been intersected with Manuel's criminal activities dating back to 1945. Peter was well known by Munsey 
The police put plain clothes officers on the bus on Monday morning when Mary got on the bus. She quickly identified Manuel's father who was on the bus. Peter was not on the bus, which if you remember in the conversation that he had with Mary, he did say that he wouldn't be on the bus on Monday. So through her identifying Manuel's father who was on the bus, Peter was arrested. The officers acted quickly and took possession of Manuel's clothes including a pair of trousers that were stained, which was thought to be the victim's blood, probably from the finger that she tore on the barbed wire fence as she was being forced over it by Manuel. They also found the knife that had been thrown away in the field and they took samples of the soil and vegetation in the area of the attack and attempts to try and match it with the staining and residue on the clothing. They also seized his diary. Manuel was charged and remanded to Berlin prison. On the 17th of October, he was tried at Airdrie Sheriff Court. He was tired looking and it looked like the police and prosecution had a really strong case. The alibi that Manuel provided for that night was also proven to be false. Initially, he had said that he'd spent the hours of the attack with Mrs. Kitty McGrogan and Kitty had said yes, they did spend the night together but it was a week before the attack. Mental reports from a doctor at Berlin Prison reported that he was not crazy so he couldn't get away with saying diminished responsibilities or anything like that. He decided to represent himself in this case and called his mother as a character witness. His story to the jury was that he and Mary were courting and they had quarrelled earlier in the day where he had struck her and he knew that that was wrong. But they had made up and went to set rabbit traps in the fields where she'd cut herself on the barbed wire. He had lost his knife due to throwing it at a dog that was about to start crossing the train line so he threw his knife to deter it from possibly getting hurt. I know, guys, if you're if you're thinking right now, who on earth comes up with a story that they lost their knife because they threw it to deter a dog from running on the railway line to possibly get hurt? I don't know. I'm thinking that also. He then goes on to say that they couldn't find it after he threw it at the dog. And he claimed that Mary was just lying about the whole story that she concocted and it was all fueled by resentment and hate towards him. The jurors were uncertain who to believe and he focused on the seven women on the jury, proper selling himself to them with his false stories and flamboyant ways of telling it. He had the superficial charm often found in psychopaths and on a side note, this charm that he exceeded or put out into the world would later receive him many offers of marriage while he was on remand for murder charges in 1958. So fast forward in the future when he's on remand for everything that's to come very shortly... People were sending him letters of love and declarations of marriage and everything else. A charged murderer. Like, it always boggles my brain. I mean, I know people do that these days as well. Like, you hear about it all the time. Like, people writing to 
Deathrow inmates and things like that and some of them even getting married I don't know I think you have to be I don't I don't even know the words for it like I think you have to be something all right to be messaging murderers no I mean just join tinder or whatever like whatever it's called like just join one of those things and find hopefully a nice normal guy that's just gonna like take you out for dinner like don't don't message and write to murderers even if you're contemplating it unless it's in like a fully researchable way or whatever like unless you're doing it for research on a project or something like that don't do it if you're trying to get romantically involved in a murderer just don't don't lead yourself down that path guys that's my only bit of that's my only bit of advice for you so back to the case the jury inclined more towards the prosecution side of the story but there wasn't enough to convict Manuel there wasn't enough evidence that they could say that it was definitely the prosecution side of the story because Manuel's story even though really flamboyant and not quite right it still could have happened with the evidence that they had. So the jury eventually brought in a verdict of not guilty. This was all so disheartening for Mary, if you think about it. Like, this horrendous thing has happened to you. You need to live the rest of your life knowing that you were attacked. Because she was brutally attacked at the start of the attack. Like, you, you need to remember that she was struck and kidnapped by a man that was holding a knife to her throat and up until the point where like it just did a 360 and changed she had legitimate fear for her life he was telling her he was going to kill her imagine being in that situation she was lucky enough to survive it but that happened to you and then the the jury comes in and says not guilty this didn't happen to you on top of that, the local community regarded Mary with dislike for the majority of her life. She was even spat at in the face by Manuel's father at the bus stop. The bus that she uses to take to work every single day. Everyone on that bus knows what's happened. He's spitting on her face. It's just disgusting. It's just like, what? No. And Mary didn't get any reprieve from this hatred in the local community because they all thought that she had lied up until the point where Manuel was caught, thankfully, for things that are going to happen in the future. Just so that you all have a little bit of peace of mind until the next one, Manuel was caught, thankfully, but there is so much more to go and the things that he done that led up to him being caught are mind-blowing. Strange and mind-blowing. But that's like an that's like nearly an hour into recording now. So I feel like at Mary's story is a good time just to wrap this episode up. And I will put the other half of the story, which there's still so much to go, in the next episode. I will 
not put them out a week apart because I hate that. Like, I hate that as a listener. I I like having it in two parts just because it's sometimes hard to get through one big, long podcast. But I hate having to wait a week in between episodes. That just, oh, the suspense. So, I will 100% get both episodes out in the same week for you. As always, please guys, go and leave a review anywhere you're listening. I would so appreciate it. It helps me get better as well because if I know what you guys enjoy and if I know what what you don't enjoy, then I know how that can improve the podcast. So please leave me a wee review whenever you're listening so that I can hear from you guys and we can grow and get better together and again twitter instagram hop on there see the pictures from this episode i'll have loads of episode pictures on peter manuel because you can find like loads of stuff so i'll even do two posts on it so that um you guys can get loads and loads and loads of pictures on this one and it is quite creepy like see if you see his face like his eyes like, if you just look into his eyes, you know he's a serial killer. And I know sometimes you look at old photos and they all kind of look like that because obviously the lighting's bad and things like that. But, no, you look in this guy's eyes and you're like, Ugh, I've got a bad feeling in my stomach. So, ugh. yeah, no, you need to go and have a look at this guy because he is weird. So, until next time, guys. See you later. Bye.